Hello and welcome to Test Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning produced by the editors and writers at TES. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing teachers today. We also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES. And this week, we're going back to 2020, when our editor, John Severs, interviewed Professor Michael Young. Young is a sociologist, and he used to teach science in secondary schools in London. Today, he's an Emirates Professor of Education at the Institute for Education at the University of London. He is best known for his work on knowledge, and in recent years, powerful knowledge in particular. To begin with, Young and Severs cover a range of complex questions. They ask, what does knowledge mean? What prior knowledge do pupils come to school with? And how should teachers approach the development of this knowledge? I think uh, in, en- in English, it's such a broad term mm. that in a sense, it's always, its meaning is given by the context in which it's used. Okay, yeah. So in a sense, uh, it's one thing to have um, uh, a knowledge of a teaching method. It's another thing to have uh, a knowledge of a street name it's an it's another thing to have a knowledge of um, quantum theory yeah. and they're all knowledge and therefore you you have to but i think the thing that i would want most emphasized is that in fact knowledge is about knowledge is about what's true mm. in the context that's the first thing that's really important the second thing is that in fact um knowledge in education is can't avoid being about how students acquire it and uh, their relationship to it mm. so it's not uh, because I might if you, if you don't take on the fact that that in fact in acquiring knowledge you develop a relationship to it you end up with knowledge as bits mm. of information and then the assumption is that the, the student is more like a computer store yeah yeah uh, and uh, that that that's the danger and therefore in a sense but it's quite difficult to conceptualize the idea of knowledge as a relation, that it's not a neat thing for a, a national curriculum or anything like that. It's interesting well, isn't it, that we never really put any quantifiers on knowledge. So we sort of say good knowledge or poor knowledge, but obviously the, the degree of mm. the degrees of knowledge are, are so broad. Yeah. But I think you can I think you can have I think for the for the teacher, and that this is what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, we're not we're not talking about the uh, the physicist yeah. or somebody else, and we're not, and we're certainly not talking about the priest who has another notion of knowledge, yeah. which is in fact which is about faith. Yeah, we're not talking about that yeah. either. Um, I think I think for the teacher, the really important thing is that there is that in whatever he or she does or says in the classroom, actually has to be the best he thinks or she thinks for that student there and then and um for instance um and if and and that's really important because he wants to somehow he wants to inspire the, the student to want to go on learning mm-hmm. to want to go on asking questions and i think that's that's really so he's not telling it as fixed he's telling it as, as a way of thinking so knowledge think- is like the teacher decides is the is the decision maker on what level of knowledge that child needs for that yeah, purpose? But they're not really. You can't really talk about levels of knowledge. What you can talk about is some kind of sequencing in something like a curriculum where kids, because in fact, what 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 teaching and education is always, it's it's about that 
that movement from your, the everyday knowledge you bring to the school and the knowledge that you end up with. Mm. Because that's why we think it's worth having kids at school. Yeah. Because we want them to have knowledge and we want them to be able to think in ways that they couldn't when they came. And there are some of the researchers, and I think it's quite a useful concept, talk about the rupture between the knowledge they come with and the knowledge you want them to leave with. And that's a big teacher's responsibility. Research is not going to solve that one yeah. um, at all. The teacher's got to kind of make sure that the, that the student actually trusts him or her in, in, in what they say. And uh, that, that's quite a responsibility. And it's why, in a sense, teaching is a much bigger job than we in society actually give credit to. Do you think that we give enough credit? You were talking about the knowledge a child comes into the education mm -hmm. system with. Obviously, education values certain types of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have this sort of hierarchical nature, notion of knowledge now in, in the system, it seems, where knowledge of, of, a, of a sort of a working class community and, and the, the social codes that go along with that is perhaps less valued knowledge in the school system than uh, more cultural knowledge around museums and, and factual knowledge. Mm -hmm. Is that attention school should be involved with, or is that, you know, is a school got to stick to its job, which is this sort of factual or, or understanding of a wider... I think that's, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't understand it in quite that way. Mm -hmm. I think I'd understand it that in fact, regardless of the cultural background you come from, um, the knowledge you've acquired in a sense, is related to the context that you're in. Mm -hmm. And you come to school, and we think it worth it, that's why we have schools, to saying you've got to make a break with that sense of knowledge, that you can't just rely on the context you've been in. You've actually got to rely on the research, the specialists in a particular area, um, might, it might be geography, it might be history, so that in a sense you're actually changing the, the, the authority of the knowledge from the experience to actually the body of knowledge that in fact the student becomes engaged with. That doesn't mean that that, that, that is a sort of fixed thing or something, but it does mean that you're, you've got a change in that relationship. And that is the one that some, some circumstances that people grow up in find easier than others. Mm. Um, and some circumstances, if not many adults are around or there are lots of kids around and not many time with adults, they've never really experienced the idea of knowledge not being tied to their experience. Whereas some, there's a constant effort on the parents to actually make them set beyond their experience. And they're much better equipped for school. Mm. So it's not about whether it's working class knowledge or middle class knowledge. It's about the changing relationship. That's what I would stress. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we actually, I guess in that process of, of, of school starting at, say, let's say four years old, let's say when they enter formal schooling and reception, mm -hmm. the starting points are so broad from that perspective. Is, is what we do with those children in the first two years about sort of letting those other children catch up? Or if we teach everyone the same, the others will pull further ahead in, in, that, in that accumulated knowledge. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, a really, it's a really difficult question, that, because in a sense what you're pointing to is the fact that uh, the, the teacher has a sense of the knowledge that he or she wants his students to have, but the pupils come with all kinds of different mm. experiences. And somehow or other you've got... You've got them. You've got to, in a sense, take them all 
and some will move faster than others inevitably yeah. and in a sense if they're 30 or 40 it's harder to keep them together i've been very impressed with what i've read and i don't know much about about japan that in fact they have a, a system which strongly emphasizes the um the importance of keeping the whole class together and not differentiating them or ranking them or so forth. And we tend to have a different assumption that sort of pulls out the bright ones and pushes them and gives them a chance. And then some of the others, are, it's a very different culture. In the end, it doesn't work out so differently, but it's a very different culture. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, for instance, you get very, very small number of special needs kids in Japan, not because there are differences in the sort of innateness between Japanese and English students, but because they approach the problem of diversity of learning experience in different ways. One focuses is on the collective of the class, the other focuses on the individual learner. Mm. And it's, I guess it's with, with the way our system's set up, and you know, if you're a parent of a child who who is who has some of that um, that 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 school type of knowledge ready mm -hmm. you don't want your child you know there's pressure on the school to say look how are you pushing that child you're pushing them on you're pushing them on and and they may not be giving time to that the other children to catch up even though and so there's a tension there that's outside of like a teacher's control which is a which is a parental or a market uh pressure if you like oh. i mean i think you, you i mean you know primary teachers develop ways of coping with that mm. and in a sense that the system doesn't always recognize them in the kind of way it recognizes the say the good physics well-qualified physics teacher because you can identify the knowledge that he or she has and market you can't do that so well with, with primary school teachers mm. and um but i think what's shifted a bit in primary schools is the the move away from a of dominantly child-centered because the old notion was allow the you know encourage the child to celebrate their own play their own activity and so forth and that's fine but it never took them it never took any of them beyond and if you look at the differences between private and public primary schools you find that the private preparatory schools actually uh, focus on subjects much sooner than they do in the primary schools okay. and that and that actually gives them a sort of an advance in their learning um it doesn't mean that it denies that background but it's slightly easier for the teachers of those uh in those schools because there's some there's more common experience of the pupils young is an advocate for scrapping gcses this movement has ramped up since 2020 when this podcast was recorded for the past two years, SATs, GCSEs and A-levels haven't taken place as normal due to the pandemic. And according to some, this is an opportunity to rethink the way in which we assess our children. Indeed, think tank EDSK called for GCSEs to be scrapped by 2025 and replaced by computer-based assessments in a majority of national curriculum subjects. But what would Jung's alternative be? Here he discusses that and goes on to talk about specialist knowledge within subjects. I think we have a vastly over-specialised, um, I mean, education, even for those, you know, even for those of us who were, in quotes, relatively well-educated, mm. you know, I did nothing but physics, chemistry and maths from the age of 16 to the age of 18. That's not an education. Mm. It's not a good education. So we over-specialise, and I, I would maintain a breadth 
And the part of the reason that we over-specialise um, is that, in fact, we still have, other than in Scotland, short first degrees. Because yeah. Scots have four years, you see, where you can... And the Americans have, you know, much broader first degrees. Uh, and I think that, you know, particularly in a modern 21st century, uh, you know, time, we actually have to have... We have to emphasise breadth as well as specialisation. And do you think then that... Because in your work, it seems to be that, you know, if a teacher is going to be this sort of arbiter of knowledge, or at least a trans, uh, some sort of uh, play with knowledge that comes in and, and, and mm -hmm. goes out, the role of subjects is an interesting one. Because at secondary, I can see how a geography teacher or a maths teacher might have that specialist knowledge. Uh, there may be subjects where they haven't got enough teachers, so that becomes more difficult. And at primary as well, where you, you tend to get literacy and numeracy specialists, but the specialisms beyond that tend to... Mm -hmm. And to fade away, how do you, how do you get to a point where that teacher is able to be that selector of knowledge and that interpreter of knowledge? Well, I mean, I think it's a great mistake the the literacy and numeracy strategies mm. because I don't think that generic knowledge of language or number are in a sense knowledge that that access to knowledge. I would, in fact, and what it's led to is a diminution of the opportunities in the primary school for kids to do a variety of, of to develop a learning in a variety of context. So, I mean, that I would, I mean, that, that I would think is, is, is quite an important issue, you know, that in fact, um, you can't get away from the fact that in a sense that teachers who are excited and challenged by their subjects are most likely to stimulate pupils in learning. Mm. Nobody is going to, if you're an English teacher, you're never going to be able to stimulate a pupil in literacy yeah. because it's boring. Yeah. Uh, you're going to stimulate a, a pupil in literature and in a sense, if, it's, if literature is well taught and, and well selected on the curriculum, then in a sense, you will become literate mm. in the more technical sense. And that, I think, is true across across the world. That's why I'm, you know, as an, I used to teach science. I used to teach chemistry in secondary school before I came to university. Okay. Uh, and um, I'm very, very committed to the importance of single subjects because, in a sense, nowhere, I mean, no one does science in our society, modern society, except those who teach it. <laughs> no one does. It's crazy, really. What they do, they do increasingly specialised versions of chemistry or physics or biology. Mm -hmm. so there's a good case for actually teaching those subjects, but no case for teaching general, integrated, combined, any of those things at all. And um, so what you get uh, is a kind of genericism uh, that you talk. And um, I had, a, I mean, it's a particular experience, but you might not want to put it in the podcast but in fact i i when my daughter uh elder daughter is um uh she she was hopeless at science and so i said let's look at the exam papers and i spent two or three weekends before gcse's going through them and increasingly i found that she she's a bright kid i mean in other ways mm. but she just didn't hate science that she could work out and uh, uh what the answer was being looked for. And in a sense, she ended up with two Bs at GCSE okay. in science, 
but she didn't any more science than anybody who not done it. You know, I, I, I think that's a really unfortunate development, really. And I, I think there's a slight reversal to that now, which I'm very pleased to hear, because subjects, I think, subjects have been seen as traditional, old-fashioned, backward-looking, elitist, all those things. But they, and they can be those things, of course they can, mm. but what they also are, are ways of building the identity of the learner, yeah. are getting them to be excited about wanting to acquire more knowledge, because the boundaries, actually, they come across. They find there is a boundary, and there are boundaries in life, you know. Yeah. So I don't think one should be frightened of boundaries, but as long as you can communicate the sense that they have a purpose, but they're not fixed, they're not given, you know. And therefore, I think that I think subjects are, are absolutely crucial role in in uh, in the curriculum for any child. Do we need then to recruit or find a way of recruiting more subject specialists in primary, or do we need, or do primary teachers need? A level of knowledge that perhaps means they can be generalists as teachers and still do that knowledge communication process? Uh, I hesitate to comment about, I'm, I mean, uh, I've you know, taught in secondary schools mm. and I've, my, all my research and so forth has been on the secondary curriculum and the post-compulsory a little bit in higher education. I think it's very tricky, you know, I, I would hesitate. What I would say is that, um, and I think the most successful primary schools have some subject specialists. And in a sense, every teacher in a primary school should be a subject specialist, uh, but not necessarily only teach the subject. Okay. That's what I would think. And therefore, in a sense, they would have a relationship with the other subject specialists. So their class would sometimes go to the subject specialist, not, not stay with their class teacher. So I think it's a different relation. I mean, there's too sharp a difference between child-centered, all the time, no specialization. You get to, to the secondary school Suddenly, and yeah. exactly the opposite. Yeah. And no wonder some kids find it difficult to make the move. Do you think that's where all free schools have an advantage? And I know not all free schools do this, but- Free schools? All free schools. So the schools that take a child from four to 18, and it, it seems to be increasingly that that model you're talking about where they go to an, a science teacher do you have the secondary science teacher will actually do some work with year six year five year four maybe even earlier and so you have some of these subject specialists you know there is general teaching i think still but like they dive into literacy they will dive into science and they will dive into languages teaching with, mm -hmm. a, with a specific teacher and because they have these secondary teachers in the all through system they're available to them is it easier for them to do to do the sort of i don't think it's easier because i think none of it's easy okay. i think it's hard yeah. uh, but i've been very very impressed i've worked a little bit with them um, school 21 yes yeah and they started off without subjects and emphasizing uh you know uh reliance and these kind of notions yeah and they've gradually realized they had to bring subjects in uh, and the question is how, and for instance, the, one of the guys I know who's head of science, he's actually thinking about science for five-year-olds and A-level science. And I think that gives him really, and his team a really interesting the relationship. I mean, I, I don't know the school directly, but I'm, I'm very impressed with the model. And in that sense, 
I think that um, the, the school, the free school, not because it's a free school, but because it's got that through. Next, Young reflects on what the practical implications of his research are for pedagogy and classroom practice. We emphasised that this, it, this, I'm just to add a bit, you can agree or not, um, this comes up because of this emphasis on powerful knowledge mm. and the idea in the book I wrote with David Lambert that in fact powerful knowledge could be a curriculum principle. Mm. Therefore, in a sense, and that, that's, that's where it comes from. I mean, I think that we over, we, we, when I started writing this, um, I had these two um, approaches to the curriculum. Remember, I wasn't thinking about influencing practice in schools. I was thinking about questions of armed sociological research and education yeah. uh, then, because that was the context I was in. But we had these two notions, powerful knowledge and knowledge of the powerful. Mm. Now, uh, They've got split, and knowledge of power got forgotten about. Mm. Knowledge of power was, in a sense, the old the old sociological way that said the the, the, the curriculum is an imposition by the ruling class. That kind of other, mm. not terribly helpful. Got some truth in it, but not terribly helpful. But what knowledge of the powerful, which got lost, does forget, it is, is I think, is is it forgets. Uh, what sorry? What powerful knowledge on its own is limited in two ways. In one way that it implies there's a sharp separation between curriculum and pedagogy, yeah. which is actually false. I'm, that's where the centre of my current work trying to think about that very issue. Yeah. The other is that in fact um, having a curriculum based on powerful knowledge is not just getting the concepts and the subjects right. Is having the resources to do it. Mm. Uh, and in a sense, I would say that a powerful knowledge curriculum is a high resource curriculum. And that, of course, is why, in a sense, the private schools and the grammar schools can do it. And part of the resources, the support they get from their parents, part of the resources, there's a lot more, lot more money. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we have to hold together those and not imagine that if you've if you've got relatively low resources, that you're going to actually succeed with a high resource curriculum. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's not ever been grasped because it's a rather more uncomfortable issue. And also it's an issue that blurs the educational debate and the political debate. Yeah. And I think that's another issue that someone else who's been cited in the knowledge movement, Edie Hirsch, mm -hmm. you've both been sort of gathered into this argument for knowledge, which has aligned itself with um, perhaps, you know, people, I'm sure listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. it, it, it's aligned itself with a more traditional form of teaching and a, and a more traditional view of behaviour. And so you have this package being rolled out where the yours and, and the E.D. Hirsch's work is aligned to, 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 to a pedagogy and aligned to an approach to behaviour and, an and a value system in education, actually. And I, I, I interviewed E.D. Hirsch a couple of years ago, and he was mm. quite shocked at, yeah. at being clubbed together with I can imagine. And for yourself, I mean, how do you feel about that, those associations? Well, I've had, I've come across a lot of criticism about, of, that, of that kind mm. uh, directly, or sometimes from colleagues and friends of mine, you know, what are you doing? You're actually sustaining the inequality that you claim to be opposed to. Um, I, I, I think that, um, I mean, I think that it, uh, 
That is a tricky issue because one of the things I have emphasised is that you can't escape. This is really a critique of future two. You can't criticise reliably the idea that, in fact, there's a, there are hierarchies in pedagogy, mm. that in fact, actually, there's some people who know and others who don't. Yeah. You know, it's it's always, whatever you do, you know, you can't turn education into a collaborative community. Yeah. It's always going to be a, a collaborative hierarchy. Mm. And I think that's really important. And it often has got become a kind of polarisation. People tend to end up by polarising things into two opposites which is not really very helpful because, and just as with curriculum and pedagogy, um, you can't, you could write the most beautiful curriculum in terms of its sequencing, its pacing, its reliability of the knowledge taken from the disciplines, all those things. Now those things are important, but you could do that, but if you haven't addressed what the teachers have to do to in fact enable the kids to acquire that knowledge, you know, you're going to do nothing. <laughs> uh, and I think that, it's made me want to focus much more, uh, more recently, on uh, that second the the fact that that the, the curriculum is actually it's a different concept of knowledge to the knowledge that's produced by research. Mm-hmm. That in fact, that if you're if you're a researcher trying to find, get nearer to the truth about the universe or about whether Shakespeare. What, what he said in interpreting Hamlet, whatever, or some kind of historical thing like that, you're not concerned that one of your concerns is not how how are pupils going to understand that. Yeah. But if you're a teacher, that is, a, it's always a concern. And so the actual organisation of the knowledge is going to be different. You, uh, not just the selection, but the relationship. And you actually have to focus on the fact that you want you want kids to inquire and to actually, because the, the most successful teaching that I've ever done and, and I've found, it's not different when you're supervising a PhD student yeah. than when you're teaching a, a, a second year secondary teacher. The mo- when the le- when the learner manages to engage with what they're doing, yeah. and really, then the teacher can almost sit back. Yeah, you know. Um, because in a sense, it's a learning issue. I think that I think teachers do that. You know, like there's a very yes. polarized debate, uh, maybe on social media and at a policy level. But when I go into schools, what I see mm-hmm. is teachers doing exactly that. They're they're looking at that class. They're looking at the relationships they have, and they're saying, "This pedagogical approach today will be the best approach I have to com- communicate this level of knowledge." And it's not like a it's not like they'll do that every lesson. It's, no. it's, it's a chameleon, if you like, of of different approaches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those polarizations, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and those polarizations are really uh, the problem is that they're hard to they're hard to conceptualize in a sense. Yeah. I mean, for instance, my colleague David Lambert uh, has an interesting notion about curriculum making, but curriculum curriculum making involves the relationship with the student. But it also involves a relationship with the body of knowledge, mm. and it's and in a sense, and so it's it's quite it's, it's not easy to develop that model. We're getting a sense now this this difficulty you're saying because really to to effectively teach we're saying you not only have to be 
an expert at some level on your content, but an expert level on reading your students and an expert level of communicating and bridging those two, those two polars, opposites, I guess. Some. No, you do. You, you have to. No, I think. But then we come back to that old question that, in fact, you know, teaching is a, just as difficult a profession as law or medicine, mm. but for various reasons, partly that there are a lot of teachers, uh, that, in fact, uh, partly that, and partly that, in fact, there's not the body of scientific knowledge that's almost itself given, yeah. uh, or the body of law, which is almost kind of given. Yeah. There's not the same, the, the, a lot of left to the judgment of the teacher, and therefore it doesn't have the, the difficulty of the task, doesn't have the status in the society that it should. Mm. That's what they always say about, you know, Finland is always put up there yeah. as the great success story, you know, and, um, but basically, I mean, I had a very interesting story I always experienced. Um, I was giving a seminar to a group of um, Australian heads who've been going around different, um, uh, different European schools in different European countries. They ended up with me and I was asked to give them a sort of review of, you yeah. know, the criticism. I remember talking to the heads and they said, we didn't, we didn't think much of what went on in Finland. Um, far as far as we could see, it was a lot of teachers standing up in front of the class, and a lot of pupils sitting rather quietly. <laughs> and uh, but what they didn't—I mean, not only that, obviously—but what 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 he didn't grasp was that what was really different was the common valuing of education and teachers in Finland in comparison to Australia or England. Yeah, that's that's what did, made the difference, you know. The, therefore, the support that parents gave, all those kind of things. So how exactly can leaders build power for knowledge into the curriculum? Young stresses the importance of respect for the subject you're teaching. I would start by trying to make sure that, in a sense, the subject teachers really felt involved and knowledgeable about their subjects mm -hmm. and actually got a kick out of their subjects mm -hmm. um, that, as, as something that really interesting that I, I and that somehow or other and this is difficult I think what's difficult is that you also want them to take kids seriously even those who don't get excited by their subject mm -hmm. so I think that it's that relationship I would want to stress that relationship between your subject you know I really think that chemistry is a thrill, you know. Not everybody does; they find it. And, but in a sense, um, you've got to you've, you've got to be committed to making it. So, and you've also got to. It's also about your stuff. You've got to, as the teachers, you've got to believe that any kid who comes to your school can, at the very least, get something out of chemistry up till the age of sixteen. They may not go on doing it afterwards. That's yeah. fine. But in fact, up to then, so I I'd be stressing. I'd be stressing the, 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 the task of bringing on all the kids and of the respect for the subject that, in fact, you're teaching them. And, that, um, and I think the best teachers do that anyway. Does that mean, do you think, understanding that, I have not, that not every child is going to find to be curious to explore your subject and to find a way of... Do you think a good teacher can make a student curious about anything or do you think it's an acceptance to say okay well uh, it's a fair enough question and i <laughs> can give you an answer exactly i think that the, the teacher must be that must be a part of the teacher's commitment but i mean just as 
doctors don't cure every patient. Some kids will fail. Mm. Some kids will not do well. And the teacher shouldn't feel guilty about that. But it's a question. I mean, the question seems to me is the assumption you can have about well, two things, I think. The assumptions of the value of knowledge and the assumptions that you have about pupils, mm -hmm. that, that they can do it. Now, some won't, however hard you try. But what you can hold on to is the fact that it's no good, um, I don't know, uh, I think of the example of, 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 of chemistry because that's what I used to teach in school. Um, it's no good being uncertain and unsure about the basic knowledge, whatever it is, of the elements of organic chemistry or the structure of carbon atom, whatever it is. It's no good being, you, you've got to start from a confidence in that, not because it's fixed, but because it actually gives you the best questions to ask. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's the key thing. Because if, if they can grasp the idea it's about the best questions to ask, they'll want to go on asking those questions. Now, you won't be able to do it with any every kid, so I can't do it with, well, I teach, I don't teach very much now uh, at the Institute, but, you know, I want to excite people, kids, students, in actually thinking about what schools are before, before they go and teach in a school. Yeah. And I think that we don't ask that question. I mean, one of the, I think, I mean, you know, um, I gave a, it was about 2008, I gave a talk to the RSA called What Are Schools For, uh, which has been published. It's, I think it's kind of one of the, I mean, it was a revelation to me to ask that question. Yeah. And therefore, if it was a revelation, and, it, and I think it was one of the more important papers, it's not a very, it's not one that's got high in the academic rating, but actually getting people to ask that, the audience of the RSA, all graduates, of course, yeah. didn't like the talk. They didn't like the talk because they thought there was community education for some who needed it and academic education for others. And they thought they heard me saying that schools have a purpose that is about access to knowledge, which is why I, I mean, if they don't have a, that purpose, I really don't know what we have schools for except car-minding. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tez Podagogy. Please join us again next week when we will be joined by Dr. Tara Porter. Until then, thank you for listening.